hopefully some of you have heard of and read a very good Christian author by the name of C.S. Lewis. Uh, hopefully that rings a bell, and if not, I encourage you to do that. In preparing for today's topic, I found a quote by him. It said, if there's one thing he could change about the gospel, it would be the topic for today's sermon. That wasn't within his control or ability. I tend to agree. Last Sunday, and again, I know a little out of context for a traditional maybe few weeks before Christmas sermon, but last Sunday, we talked about heaven. We talked about some myths that we have behind that. We talked about some realities. We brought up some questions, some things we don't know quite for certain. And I told you today I wanted to look at the topic of hell. So that would be the topic that C.S. Lewis said he'd like to get rid of. And I'd say all of us would agree with that, wouldn't we? But regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of whether I enjoy preaching on it, and I don't, just to let you know the answer to that, uh, it is a reality that we have to confront. I don't get to pick and choose parts of the scriptures that I think are true or not true. I try as best I can to follow the scriptures wholly. And this is a part of the scriptures and a part of reality, a part of something that we face. And so as we look at this and kind of, if you missed last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. You can, you can find details on the bulletin for how to do that. But this is the the other side of the coin, if you will, the companion to last Sunday. And I want to make sure we understand this because just like with heaven, where we have lots of ideas that we get probably from Sunday morning or Saturday morning cartoons about heaven that are false and incorrect, we have the same thing when we talk about hell. So let me address a few of those real quickly. One of the falsehoods that we hear is that Hell is a story that it doesn't really exist and that we just simply maybe fall asleep or we are reincarnated and come back as a different person or a different animal. Those things are, in fact, false. Heaven is very real. Another thing we, I'm sorry, hell is very real. Another thing we might hear is that this is some type of scare tactic. And while it has certainly been used in that way and perhaps sometimes appropriately and other times inappropriately, um, hell is not just a story to scare people to get them to, to behave. That is, that is not what it is. Something else that we miss all too often is, again, probably from uh, cartoons, we have this idea that there's uh, pitchforks and hooved feet and horns and all these types of things for little devils, and that is inaccurate as well. We also tend to think that this is Satan's dominion. Now, this is actually an important nuance we may not realize. Hell was created for Satan. It's not his kingdom, and he will be punished there like others. The devil is not in hell currently. Well, pop quiz this morning, where is he? <laughs> He's here. <laughs> we tend to forget that, don't we? Maybe it's more comfortable for us to place him down there and think he's somehow, you know, in charge. And he's not. He will be punished there like others. There is absolutely no parting in hell. And I've heard this flippantly said a lot. And people will talk about, well, I'll be down there and go down and party. That is absolutely 
incorrect. Something else that's also incorrect is this idea that a loving God would never send someone to hell. Scriptures tell us the exact opposite. Or that a just God would never do that to somebody. And scriptures tell us the exact opposite. There are a few things that we don't know a whole lot about that we have some question over. Uh, One of them is, where is it? It's not the center of the earth. That also is kind of a myth. The scripture does talk about it being down, similarly to how we talk about heaven being up. And we talked about last week, we don't entirely know where heaven is at. It's not floating on the clouds per se, and nor is hell the center of the earth. But hell does seem to be somewhere down, but we're not exactly sure. There are some interesting questions about it. There are verses that talk about how it is dark, that there is no light. But yet there are verses that talk about there being fire, which gives off light. So that brings an interesting question. How can there be fire without light? If you do some research on that, you will find that there are certain types of fire and chemical fires and other fires that burn so hot there is no light. So that's maybe one possibility there. But we don't entirely know. Something else we don't really understand is how something can burn and not be consumed. Because there are verses that talk about that. Talk about how there will be a burning fire and that, that there will be things, but yet it lasts forever. So it's not consumed. And so we're not really clear on how that works. There are not uh, levels of hell, at least as presented by Dante in his uh, work that he did there, that seems to be passed down through many uh, generations. It is possible there is certain degrees of punishment. The Bible does seem to indicate that that could be done. Um, Revelation 20 talks about how people are judged according to what they had done, and Luke 10 and 12 says, uh, it is more bearable on that day for Sodom and for towns that have rejected Christ. And so it seems that there is some level of differentiation there. But there's still lots of things we don't know. So let me move on to some of the things we do know, because that's where I want to spend the majority of my time. I could guess about some other things, and we could uh, talk about it, but I really would rather tell you what I do know based on the Scripture. First is there's multiple words that are used for this same idea, and we'll talk about those for just a minute. You might... Read, especially if you have uh, the King James, but even other translations try to make this more accurate, the word uh, Sheol or the word Hades. Those are the same words. One's Hebrew and one's Greek. The first is Hebrew. The second is, is Greek. And what that really means is the place of the dead. Now, I said last week, and I'm not taking that back at all because that's not what people think of. There's no purgatory. There's no halfway in between. You can pray somebody out. All of that's a complete myth and completely made up. But there does seem to be an indication that there is a place that the dead go until a point later. And that is probably what that is referring to. This is where we find the great story with the divide, where the the man who is suffering in hell asks for a single drop of water to cool his tongue. And we see that going on there as well. We see uh, a term in the New Testament. Jesus mentions this multiple times called Gehenna. And that is actually a reference to a uh, valley outside of Jerusalem where they burned trash and all kinds of waste. So if you had a dead animal or even a dead person, you might drag them there and dump them in this valley. It would stink. There was rotting. It's where we get the verse talking about the worm that never dies, this idea that there's a continual stench and flesh. And because of all the trash that was piled high and 
there, it was kind of a place that was always burning and smoldering, some place that was unclean, some place you didn't want to go. And so that was often used as an imagery of what hell would be like. We also see a concept of a, a lake of fire. This is probably more the, the final version of hell, if you will, the place of eternal punishment, a place that was designed for angels initially. So those are some, some differences between those terms, but they're all getting to the same concept, that there is an ultimate resting point. And if it hasn't been clear already, either from last week or this week, let me make it abundantly clear today, the end of this physical life that we have on earth is not the end of us. We go on for eternity. And there is one of two places that that occurs, either with our Lord and Savior in a place we call heaven, or absent our Lord and Savior in a place that we call hell. There is no in-between. There is no um, option. You cannot go to one and change your mind. It doesn't work that way. And so the reality is we are, in a sense, our spiritual beings are immortal. And there is a great question over what happens after we leave this physical life and which of those places we will go. As I mentioned last week, the scripture reveals to us that those of us who know the Lord and have been saved, as soon as we depart this life, we are present with him. We are present with him. And that is a great encouragement to us. We also see that those who do not know him, who have not trusted in him, who have not been saved, when they depart this life, they go immediately to hell. We see that multiple places in Scripture uh, mentioned, not quite as clear as we have the occurrence for going to heaven, but it, clearly the concept is there. We also seem to think that those who are in heaven have some sort of body. And this is mentioned multiple times in the Scripture. Specifically, we look at Lazarus and his desire to be cooled, talking about tipping uh, your finger for a drop of water on his tongue and other uh, body parts. So it seems to some degree we have some type of Body, bodily presence in hell. And particularly, Matthew 10 and 28 says a very wise thing. It says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so we are reminded that we should fear God because he can destroy not only our soul, but also our body in hell. Let me discuss a few ways that hell is described. As I've mentioned already, it's eternal. How long does this last? It lasts forever. This is a really hard concept. How do we possibly imagine what it means to last forever? We are made in time. Time is something we are bound by. Time is a creation. But understanding that there is an infinite period of time, the few years we have on this earth are in various places described in the scriptures as a spark that flies up out of a fire and goes away as a wind, as a breath, as the flower that fades. The amount of time that we have on this earth is short. Some it's very short, some it is slightly longer, but the reality is we are only here a short time and there is an eternity. And if you were destined for punishment in hell, then that punishment is eternal. Scriptures also tell us that there is an unquenchable fire, a fire that never goes out, something that burns and is hot. The book of Daniel indicates that there is shame and everlasting contempt. 
Now, this is interesting because I think it kind of ties in with what we talked about last Sunday. And I was saying that I don't know what we'll know when we get to heaven. We don't know how much we'll know. But this seems to indicate that those who go to hell know a lot because there is eternal shame and contempt. We carry with us our struggle. Luke talks about how this is a place of torment. And Revelation mentions that there is smoke and torment and it rises forever and ever. Revelation also talks about how it's a lake of burning sulfur or brimstone, which is where we get that phrase from, where the wicked are tormented day and night forever and ever. And Matthew 8 and 12 talks about it being outer darkness. Back in Revelation, it mentions a bottomless pit or an abyss. And we see that it is full of regret. And in Matthew, it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means sorrow and pain. Gnashing of teeth, that's a, that's a phrase. I mean, we don't use that very often, but we can think about maybe you've had times when you've been in incredible pain and you tend to clamp down as hard as you can on, on your teeth. This is why we see... Um, Maybe portrayed more in movies than reality, but certainly is a reality fact that you know, have something to put in your mouth to bite down on when you're getting ready to go through times of excruciating pain. And so the image here is that you will be punished and the pain will be such that you grind your teeth as hard as you possibly can. The other way that hell is described that I think is very appropriate is it's an alienation from God's love, mercy, and grace. You see, heaven is the exact opposite. Heaven is the opportunity for us to fully, without restrictions of this body, be in God's presence and to fully take in his grace and his love and his mercy. And hell is the exact opposite of that. It is the absence of all of those things. As I mentioned, hell wasn't initially created for us. Matthew 25 and 41. Then he will say, depart from me, you cursed and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't the goal for us to be there. This is so important and so vital to what we believe today, to what the gospel is and what the good news is. God created us perfect. He set us in a garden. He gave us commands for how we should live. And particularly, he gave us one rule. And Adam and Eve couldn't do it. It's easy for us to shake our fist at God sometimes, to be angry. It's easy to perhaps sit here or to listen to this message and think, well, geez, you're being really unfair. How could God possibly uh, punish someone for all eternity? There's so many rules, so many things that are hard to do. But listen, God made it very easy the first time and we couldn't mess it up. We could not mess it up. I don't know how long paradise was before the fall, but we know that it happened. And we know that we are suffering the consequences because of that. We know that his desire was for us to know him and to have a relationship with him, for him to come in the cool of the evening to walk with us and to talk with us. That is still his desire today, except we are disobedient. We pull away from him. Let me tell you another fact about heaven and hell that will be very disappointing to you today. There are a lot more people in hell than there are in heaven. 
by a lot. The scripture makes this abundantly clear to us. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See, this sets us up for where we're at today. The reality is you don't have to try at all to go to hell. In fact, you don't have to do anything. The fact that we simply are and born into this world, cursed because of Adam, that has been passed down from generation, and because of our own actions, which are disobedient to God, that is the place that we deserve. And we have to do nothing to get there other than simply to be here. That's why it is wide. That's why it is easy to go to hell. But it's hard to go to heaven. Why is it hard to go to heaven? This is a really good question. Let's think about this for just a minute. Why is it hard to go to heaven? You know why it's hard to go to heaven? Because we don't want to give up control. I think that's a really important aspect. Because at some point, to come before an almighty God and realize that He loves us, and He wants us to be with Him, and He wants us to be reunited with Him both on this earth and forever in heaven, we have to come to the end of ourselves and finally give up and give over to Him. And we don't want to do that. We want to be in control. We want to be the one who tells us what to do. We want to have leadership in our lives. We want to live the way that we want to live. But God requires us to be obedient to Him and to be completely given over to Him. And for most of us, we'll never do that. That's why it's hard and that's why few find it. Don't believe Matthew? Look at Luke 13. Someone was asking Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he replied, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Let me go on and we'll come back to that one. I think we also have this view and image of God that involves our thoughts on hell, that somehow God is happy up there in heaven and kicking people, flicking them off and sending them to hell and maybe enjoying what it is that he's doing up there. God takes no delight in any of this. As I said, he created us to know us, to be a part of our lives. He created us for something different. He created angels, as I mentioned last week. We don't die and become angels. Angels are an entirely separate thing. So why did He create us? Because He loves us and He wants us. So God takes no pleasure in this. Ezekiel 33 tells the prophet, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? See, God has been pleading with us and pleading from the very beginning that we would turn back from our wicked ways, that we would not go the way, the broad path, the automatic path, the way that leads to destruction, but that we would seek Him. And He doesn't want us 
to be punished. He doesn't want us to be eternally separated. In fact, he wants us to know him so bad that he sent his only son to die for us that we can be reunited with him. That's what we're celebrating this month. We are looking forward unto this. He was looking forward unto this. The angels looked down from heaven and rejoiced at the birth of his son because they knew what God knew, that it would wipe away the sins of the world if we would only go through the narrow gate, come to him, giving him everything that we have and seeking his forgiveness. This is not what God wants, but as I pointed out, God is both just and God is both loving. I mentioned this the other night on a Sunday night, but I want to make sure I repeat it here real quickly. Again, this is a a broader context, and I feel like any one of these topics we could go on for a long time. And the purpose of this was really just kind of a a high-level pass on these two concepts. But if God is just, and He is, God has to punish. If you were the victim of a horrible crime... And you go before an earthly judge, and the judge says, well, the person who did this to you said he was sorry, so we're just going to let that pass. You would say, that's not fair. Maybe some of you have been in that situation. We certainly have judges who do some things like that today. No, a fair judge would have to say, even though you are sorry, and I believe that you're sorry, there is still justice and a penalty that has to be paid for your behavior and for your actions. That is true justice. And our Lord and God being justice is one of his attributes. Being just, therefore, must punish those who have fallen short of his plan. And who is that? Well, it's all of us. But also being full of grace and mercy, he provided a way out. And who was that? It is his only son who he sent in the form of a baby who would grow up, who would never commit sin, and who would voluntarily pay the penalty that I can't pay. See, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what we celebrate at this time of year. This is why we sing songs praising Him. This is why we do the things that we do, because we are happy and joyful that God sent His Son so that we don't have to go to hell and be separated from Him. Let me get a couple more things straight here, and we'll kind of come to a conclusion. Particularly this... There is only one way to avoid hell. One way. I mentioned before that we're all going there unless this one way happens. John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the greatest lies we can tell society today is that all religions are the same. They all lead to the same God. That's a flat-out lie. Buddha will not get you there. Worshiping the environment will not get you there. Pick any other false and fake religion. It will not get you there. There is one way to Him, and that is through Jesus Christ. He said it himself. The scripture reveals it. The spirit of God reveals it in our lives. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. 
There is no other way. You will not bargain your way in. You will not be good enough. It doesn't matter whether you've been baptized, whether you've been a member. If you haven't come through Jesus Christ, then you are not going. Well, how do we do that? Well, Jeremiah tells us, 29, 13, you will seek me and find me and you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does that mean? I'm going to be very plain today. We read last Sunday a scripture that's just as true about heaven as it is about hell. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I read earlier that broad is the way and narrow and few will find it. What does that mean when we combine this with Jeremiah? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What that means, again, is we have to truly, truly believe. We really don't understand the phrase that's used here in the, um, in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Old English and the King James. But listen, when it talks about believing, it's talking about more than a simple head knowledge. Because I dare to say a huge majority of the population would say today, well, I believe in God. It's not going to cut it. You have to believe with all that you have. You have to come before him, recognizing your sin and falling before him and saying, Lord, please forgive me. Please help me. And until he does, you've accomplished exactly nothing. And even this is the horrible truth or horrible untruths that are preached from many, many, many pulpits today. We'll just repeat these five or six magic words or this sentence Come down front, shake my hand, fill out a card. Just say that you believe and you're good. The reality is that is not, in fact, at all the case. You must seek him with all your heart. What does that mean? You have to give up your own will. You have to recognize where you stand before him. Many will seek, but few will find. Many are wanting at some point, but many Do not trust in Jesus alone. We're unwilling to give up our own will. We're unwilling to trust. We don't truly believe that the way the scripture says it. I like the old country tradition, and I've said it here before, and many of you have said it. You got to know that you know that you know. It's really hard to describe it any other way, isn't it? How do you know that you're saved? You know. But how do you know that you know? Do you know that you know? Are you secure in this? Because again, the reality is if you don't know, the outcome is not what you want. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Turn with me to John 3. John 3. Let me start with the most famous verse in the scripture. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why everyone, everyone knows that one, don't they? It's easy to say. It's easy to quote. It's easy to give as an encouragement. You say, well, don't you believe in God? You say, well, sure, I believe in God. Most people believe in God. Huge percentage of the population believes in God. 
Do you believe the way this means? We rarely continue reading on. We might get to verse 17. For God sent his son. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, that's comforting too, isn't it? I'm not really condemned. He's here to save me. And we all get to be saved, right? No. And almost never do we get to verse 18. He that believeth not him, believeth on him not, is condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, here we see, if you're in red, if your scripture has it this way, the hard and sobering truth. You automatically don't believe the way this is talking about. And that means that you're condemned already. Condemned to what? Condemned to hell. Condemned to an eternity suffering. Contend to utter darkness. Contend to being alone. There is no party. There is no changing your mind. There is no second opportunity. This is all the reality. That we are born as sinners into this world. That we continue to sin. And everything we do separates us from a holy and just God who deserves and is, has the authority and will punish us by separating us from Him for how long? For all eternity. And He is right to do it. And He is just to do it. And just because you know this and listen to what I said up here in your head doesn't change the position of your heart before an almighty God. You must come before Him and truly believe in Him, and seek Him, and ask for that forgiveness, and know that you have received it, to know that you will be going to heaven. But even better than that, now I'll, I'll be honest, this is where I think sometimes we fall apart. You know, we, we really focus on how great heaven will be, and you know what, it's going to be really, really good. How good? I can't even explain it. The scriptures say they can't even explain it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. I have no idea how good it's going to be and how long it's going to last forever. How long is that? I don't know. But you know what we so often miss? Do you know what we so often fail to really talk about? Is whatever time we have left in this earth, we're new once we're saved. That we get to spend the rest of our lives here with him. That we get to, while we struggle with the sin that we still have, that when he saves us, verses 16 through 18, we become a new creature. We're no longer beholden to all the things. And we have, however long we have on this earth, to live for him and to live with him and to finally one day receive his reward that he purchased for us in heaven. And the exact opposite is true for the other way. And if you don't believe, and I mean a heartfelt, true belief, then you're already condemned. You're born that way. And the decisions you make every day continue to condemn you. There is no, I'm going to do so many good works to get over this. There is no amount of money that can get you out of this predicament. There is no church membership. It doesn't matter who your relatives are. It doesn't matter how many times you've prayed. It doesn't matter anything that you do on this earth other than that you come to God humbly and seek Him. And until that occurs in your life and you've been forgiven, then you stand condemned.
Now, why would we even discuss this today? Well, I hope you see the reason. Because this is why we have Christmas. Because Jesus Christ came. What do we have to believe in? We have to believe in Him. Not in some sort of magic fairy or Tinkerbell way, but in legitimate, honest belief in Him that He came, that He did what He said He did, that He came and prepared a way for us to escape the punishment that we rightfully deserve. That means that we have to realize that we stand condemned before Him and we owe Him everything. That He has made us new, that He has saved us so that we can know Him in a later time. And so as we come to a close, as we think about Christmas, as we think about the birth of Christ and the celebration and all the things that go on this time of year, and we're thankful for all those things, let us really stop and consider, have you been saved? Do you know Him? What will be your eternal destination? It's one or the other. I can't choose it for you. I can't make you choose it. Like I said, probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century said he'd like to just get rid of this if he could, but he can't. It'd almost be easier in some ways, but it's the truth. And if I don't preach it, and I don't say the truth, and I don't tell you the truth, which is, without having been converted and received the new life, your punishment is eternity in hell, separated from Him, experiencing punishment. Then I haven't preached the full gospel. And so I stand before you today to tell you, you must be saved. And you must know Him. Anything short, and you'll literally regret it for the rest of your lives. And I will go on behalf of almost anyone I've ever mentioned this to, and I will tell you the opposite of this. I've never regretted being saved. Never have. Never second-guessed it. Never wished, oh, I wish I hadn't surrendered that one night. That one July night, I wish I, wish I hadn't done that because then I could have done this other thing. And you know what I'm not going to regret when I get to heaven? That. I'm so thankful that I gave my life, that I found the narrow way, and I did what was necessary to know Him. So I want to take just a minute and give you an opportunity to do the same thing. I want to take just a minute to give you an opportunity to consider your state before an almighty God. If you're not sure, then you need to pray and talk to God because he's the only one who can tell you. I can't tell you. I cannot look inside you. I cannot tell you what your spirit is. I cannot tell you whether you've been truly forgiven or not. I can tell you some things I might see about you on the outside, but I cannot look into your heart. Only God is able to do that. Only God is able to take this stone of heart that the scripture says that we have and turn it into something soft. Only God is able to take a sinner and make them a saint. Only God is able to rescue you from the flames of hell and give you an eternal salvation in heaven. It's between you and God and you and God alone.
And so when we give an off, not an offertory, when we give an invitation, when we give an opportunity, that is a time for you to be obedient to what God tells you to do. Whether you pray at your seat, whether you come down here, whether you go somewhere else, the reality is this is between you and God, and you must be talking to Him to hear what He wants to tell you. And so I encourage you to take a minute to seek Him. And to do what it is that he leads on your heart to do. To seek the forgiveness that only he can give. Not because there's some great reward. Not because there's some awful penalty. But because it's what he commands us to do. He tells us to seek him. And to love him. With all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind.